Hello everyone, my name is Adam, and welcome into this week's trip down the homeward path. Before we get into things, I've got a few questions. Are you a fan of Magic the Gathering? Presumably so, since you're here listening to a podcast about it, but, you know, what do I know? But is there something else in your life that takes precedence? Keeps you away from your magical aspirations? A job, a career, partner, spouse, children, any and all of the above. Listen, I'm right there with you. I have a wonderful wife, three children, full-time job, and a lot of extracurricular commitments that make it really difficult to devote the amount of time, finance, and energy that high-level competitive magic normally takes. But in spite of that, are you, like me, relentlessly seeking improvement every time you get a chance to play? If that sounds like something you're interested in, then I suggest you hop in and buckle up. Now let's go for a ride. But it's a good time to remind you that we are brought to you by the following sponsors. PureMTGO.com is one of the largest depositories of magic content on the web. They've got a little bit of something for absolutely everyone. And I do mean everyone. So head over there, check out their collection of stuff. While you're at it, I understand that the arena grind can feel like a bit of a slog, especially if, like me, you're traditionally at least a free-to-play player. But thanks to our sponsor at Grey Viking Games, you don't have to wander the wilderness in search of your glory on your own. You can head over there and find access to pre-release codes, single-pack codes, cosmetics, promo packs, uh, card sleeves, any and all of the above. So go and find your glory at GreyVikingGames.com. And if you want to support this show in a much more direct fashion, don't forget to head over to Patreon.com slash HomerPathMTG. This show is always going to be free, but if you like what we're doing enough to help us keep doing it, go over become a patron and take advantage of your rewards and if you've got questions comments or concerns about the show or you just want to talk you can find me on twitter i'm at homeward path mtg you can find me on facebook my name is adam spain like the country yes i got picked on about that for most of my life and you can join the conversation in the facebook group the homeward pathfinders So, head over, check all that stuff out, while you continue to listen on the Homeward Path. So I understand it's been way longer than it normally is between episodes, and for that I'd like to apologize. Uh, We've had a really hectic couple of weeks, to say the least. Uh, Our dog destroyed our living room entertainment systems. Uh, I was able to salvage the PlayStation 4 and tuck it away in the bedroom, but that also meant having to be much more like presently involved with the children at all times when I'm at home because they don't have a TV in the living room now to keep them distracted. 
nor do they have any in their bedroom. So I've had to just like be a lot more hands-on and it's taken some adjusting. On top of that, uh, my wife is in the process of planting a garden and she's still in surgery recovery. So when she wants to plant a garden and her doctor told her not to work too hard, that means I get to plant a garden. Uh, but we've, we've crossed most of those bridges now. <laughs> and without any further ado, because I dare say we've all waited long enough, let's dive into our first segment. Our first segment being Budget Spotlight. This is where we either are following the theme of the week or we're doing Uncommon, Rare, Mythic, and Commander-focused. Uh, this week we're going to be following the theme. It is Abzan Week. And as such, we're going to be spotlighting three cards in Abzan colors that I feel are well above their price tag in actual playability. Uh, first and foremost, we have Containment Priest. Now, Abzan being the, according to the MTG Wiki, base white con, wedge, whatever you want to call it, uh, I wanted to start with the white card. Containment Priest being two and a white. I can't remember if it's a 1-3 or a 2-2. Two, two. Somebody needs to, to back me up on that one. But Containment Priest has Flash and says, if a non-token creature would enter the battlefield and it wasn't cast, exile it. Now, Containment Priest is 75 cents a copy currently on CoolStuffInc.com. So... First and foremost, this is a premium piece of disruption against several of the pillars in Standard, Pioneer, Modern, and Historic. Notably, this card is an absolute blowout against Collected Company. Pretty strong disruption effect against a card like Experimental Frenzy. Pretty good against a card like uh, Bolas' Citadel. Really good against everything dredge-oriented because, you know, whether it's attempting to try to revitalize the Oops All Spells archetype after the actual Oops All Spells cards got banned, or just trying to play the sort of dredgeless dredge deck that we've all been trying to work on at some point or another. Uh, this thing just says no. Just, no. Get that out of here. It's not happening. Arclight Phoenix, get out of here. I mean, what is it? Greater Gargadon? Get it out of here. I, know, I guess it just casts without. Never mind. Talking out my backside. And thanks to the fact that it has Flash. Like, if it was just a three-drop creature that said what it said without Flash, it would be infinitely less powerful because you would never you would not get that first activation and be able to hamstring your opponent's resource base while you're setting up your disruption effect now like the fact that this card got put into standard modern and pioneer is something that not a lot of people are talking about and i'm not sure why this card is really really stinking good <laughs> Uh, it's been a pillar of legacy as a sideboard disruption piece and a mainstay in the taxes archetype for a long time. And I can't see a reason why it shouldn't be playing that similar role 
in basically all these other formats. If there was a Taxes deck worth playing in Standard, I would play Containment Priest in it because it shuts off so many things. So, with that in mind, we move on to the next card. Next card is Mythos of Nethroi. It's two and a black, instant. Destroy target non-land permanent if it's a creature or if... Uh, or no, it's destroy target non-land permanent if green and white were spent to cast this spell or if it's a creature. So, the fail state of an easier-to-cast murder with the upside of an instant speed maelstrom pulse, or most of an instant speed maelstrom pulse, is really good. Like, really, really, really good. Just, that thing, whatever it is, it's not a land, and I don't like it, so it's dead. That's your upside for three mana. It's, we're not that far removed from playing Mortify in Abzan decks. And this is just a strict upgrade over Mortify. Because at its fail state, it still gets the majority of what you'd use a Mortify on. You normally would kill a creature with it. But the fact that this, you know, if you're remotely color fixed, if you've got one of each color, you can just kill that Planeswalker. This answers Ugin. This answers Kiorabes the Sea God before it taps your stuff down. This answers uh, what What else? God, what doesn't this answer? Nothing. That's why. It doesn't it, the, the, virtually nothing this card doesn't answer. And not for nothing, but the fact that it only requires one black mana one black mana means you can splash it into other decks that are playing green and white. A really good example would be if you were playing the uh, if you were playing the, the Abzan Sacrifice deck back before they banned Cauldron Familiar. You know, with cards like Cruel Celebrant and uh, Corpse Knight and all, you know, if you were playing that deck before they banned Cauldron Familiar, it was really good. But on balance, you could also play it in a Naya deck that had access to Gilded Goose. Or you could play a one-of Swamp in your three-color, you know, whether it's Bant. You know, you could play Mythos of Nethroi, if I can remember how to speak my language. Uh, you could play Mythos of Nethroi in bent ramp because you could play a swamp to fetch off your cultivates and it would be an out to your opposing Ugins like I don't know why this card doesn't see any more play than it does and especially at the exorbitant price tag of 50 cents come on that's ridiculous there's no reason this card should be that cheap this is like Look at the price tag of Maelstrom Pulse, which I know can hit tokens and get all of them or punish your opponent for putting multiple names on the board or multiple of the same name on the board. But like, Maelstrom Pulse is a lot more than 50 cents. 
And this fits into quite a few of the same decks that Maelstrom Pulse does. You could even splash it as a one off, you know, splash it in Jund. Splash a white source in your Jund deck. Or splash it off Deathrite Shaman in Pioneer. Just throwing that out there. It's pretty good. And 50 cents. Like, it's ridiculous. Uh, spoiler alert basically, every card we're looking at this week is super cheap. Uh, third on the list, our green card for the week is Kazandu Mammoth. Kazandu Mammoth being uh, one green green for a 3-3. Three, three. Landfall gets plus two, plus two till end of turn. So, oh, by the way, it has another side. Uh, it's a double face card. It's one of the modal double face cards. You can either play it as a three uh, as a trained Armadon that gets bigger when you play lands. Or you can actually just play it as a land. It's a green source that enters the battlefield town. So, I would argue that this is one of the best trained Armadons ever printed. Allowing it to fill and patch multiple slots in your deck. It can be your three drop. It can also be additional lands if your curve is a little top heavy. You know, you can play like a 25 land deck, but if you're playing three Kazandu Mammoths, you're technically playing a 28 land deck, but you're not actually having to play 28 lands. So, like, that's really cool. And then extra copies actually make the first one better, which is not something you can typically say about your three-drop three-threes. Like, playing a three-drop three-three and then playing another three-drop three-three is just, it's a thing you do sometimes. You know, you got to fit a tap land in on turn four so you can curve out to turn five. But it's not exciting, is it? But if you play your 3-drop three 3-3 three, three on turn 3 and then go, you know, draw the second copy and just play it as a land, pump the first one, get in for 5. And you've got Fable Passage to use on a later turn. Or you've got, you know, you don't have to burn a Cultivate looking for a land drop yet. whatever the case may be the card is just really it's it's an unassuming kind of good it looks unbelievably boring but it's just it it does exactly what you need it to and i can dig that and kazandu mammoth is 75 cents even if you only ever use it in, like, Standard and Pioneer, it's worth 75 cents. And it's also still usable in EDH, even though you can't go get it from the deck as a land. It's still fine. It's a land you can Adventurous Impulse into. It's a land you can commune with nature into. It's a land you can uh, bring back... Uh, not bring back, what is that card's name? It's a land you can track down into. Like, it's really good. It's really good. And last but not least for Budget Spotlight, we have Eerie Ultimatum. Eerie Ultimatum is, I believe it is white, white, black, 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 green, green, if I remember correctly. 
I believe that's that's right. It may be uh, black, black, white, 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 green, green. I can't. It's it's one of those two. But uh, it's a sorcery. Seven very specific mana, as most ultimatums are. And it says, choose any number or return any number of target permanents with different names from your graveyard to the battlefield. Any number of target permanents with different names from your graveyard to the battlefield. How many times do I have to say that before we realize how busted in half this card is? Uh, it's, its price tag is the highest one of the day at $4. But it's a card you probably want like two of. Maybe. You maybe play the third if you're playing a 60 card format and obviously you only need one for Commander. But in Standard and Pioneer, this can absolutely wreck games where you built up to it, either by ripping a stabilization or outright snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. I mean, think about it in the context of Standard where, you know, if you want to use its namesake, if you want to use Nethroy, you have to go through some shenanigans to just get whatever you want. But with Eerie Ultimatum, you just get all of it. Maybe you're playing an Abzan deck that's playing, you know, a touch of red or is not even interested in casting it, but you set up a Terror of the Peaks combo with Eerie Ultimatum. Or you just bring back, like, Elder Gargaroth plus Elspeth Conquers Death plus, uh, oh, Garuk plus, you know, you just bring back a handful of powerful permanents that you've loaded into the graveyard by playing magic for seven turns. That's going to win a game pretty stinking quick. And then there's just no there's no drawback to this in commander. None. The drawback is oh no, I have to play all cards that are different names which I basically already do. Um, and the, the power level jump between this card being a reasonable, fair way to try to stabilize the board by generating a handful of enter the battlefield effects and this thing just ending in, or setting off an infinite loop that kills the table is only limited by your willingness to make people hate you. I mean, that's all, I, that, that's all there is to say, right? Like, this thing can return an entire infinite loop from your graveyard to the battlefield no matter how many cards it is for seven mana. That's kind of silly. So that'll wrap it up for Budget Spotlight this week, everybody. Remember, we do this one most weeks. We don't, like... The first two segments are kind of hit or miss. We do them most weeks. We're doing both of them this week. So moving on to segment two, we're going to talk about a brew of the week. And this week's brew is Abzan Rights for Modern. And Brett is really going to love this to get to, to hear about one of his favorite decks that he's ever played. So 
the core concept of Abzan Rights is you want to answer the question of how much value you can gain in a game of magic by answering with one word. That word is more. Your general framework is a, bunch, a handful of cards like Seder Wayfinder, like Grizzly Salvage. You want to use those to set up your graveyard while hitting land drops early in the game so that you can then flash back unburial rites and bring things out of the graveyard that will dominate the battlefield. And in particular, the budget build gets to do it with an old classic from the first set with Abzan and it's, you know, when the set where Abzan became Abzan and it does it with Siege Rhino because, you know, we haven't lived through enough formats where that card is playable. I'm not gonna say it's good, it is playable. It's a 4-5 for 4. You stand up against aggro and burn pretty well because of all the intrinsic life gain that you're playing between cards like Siege Rhino, Thrag Tusk, Restoration Angel, and chump blocking from your value enablers like Stitcher Supplier, Seder Wayfinder, or uh, Grimflayer. And you can grind reasonably well thanks to a selection of disruption and removal spells like Thoughtseize if you have them. Inquisition of Kozilek is available. Uh, you can play Tide Hollow Sculler in the deck and it's not embarrassing because if it does die early, it just means they wasted a card to get a card back and they didn't actually impact your hand or your graveyard, which means you have a chance to set up and do your thing and then you also have access to again lingering souls unburial rites and for the purposes of this segment because i don't generally like to talk about cards that are like prohibitively expensive a card like liliana waker of the dead now normally a deck like this if it had access to it would want either uh liliana the last hope or liliana of the Veil, but both of those are out of my normal price range, Liliana the Last Hope being at or around the $40 range the last time I looked it up, and then Liliana the Veil still sitting comfortably somewhere in the $70 range. We'll just play $5 Liliana Waker of the Dead, which combines sort of the elements of both of those into a package that I can use. Uh, Waker of the Dead being four mana plus one that says both players discard a card. Each opponent who can't loses three life. So it's the disruption effect of Liliana the Veil coupled with an actual win condition of just draining them for three over and over again if they don't have cards in hand. Uh, for customization, you can lean really heavily into your value enter the battlefield gimmick between Siege Rhino, Restoration Angel, Thrag Tusk, uh, Seder Wayfinder, um, Elvish Visionary, and then you can just max out on it, play more of them, cards like Ravenous Chupacabra, cards like uh, Plague Crafter, you know, be this like big Enter the Battlefield tribal deck, and just play Yorian as your companion alongside a myriad of other cards obviously, to get you to 80 to go that line. You can adopt a leaner curve 
and actually cut the seat, like the top end out of your deck, your Siege Rhino, your uh, Restoration Angel, your Thrag Tusk, and instead lean on Lurus as your companion, using cards like Stitcher Supplier, Sager Wayfinder to load the grave, and then you just grind them out with cards like Grim Flayer and uh, Narwood Dryad getting you know, swole because you have a bunch of stuff in your graveyard and you can keep casting them out of the graveyard over and over thanks to Lurus. And cards like Call of the Death Dweller and the aforementioned Unburial Rites being able to recur your Lurus. You can also play Craterhoof Behemoth in your deck, and I hope you do if you have them, as a way to sort of combo opponents out. Again, obviously you don't do that in the Lurus build, but the other two... The, the Enter the Battlefield build or like the more traditional Abzan mid-range build uh, can definitely play Crater Hoop Behemoth as a card to dump into the graveyard in order to buy it back with Unburial Rights and just win the game out of nowhere. Uh, Sideboard-wise, if you anticipate an opponent on Grap Digger's Cage, we have a solution. You can board out the graveyard package. And what I mean by that is you can board out, uh, you can board out the unburial rites, the lingering souls, and just kind of sideboard into a fair version of the mid-range deck, with more removal, more disruption, and a couple more threats. Now, obviously, if you have access to some more, you know, stuff you can use out of the graveyard, or you want to just board into ways to kill Cage. If you think that's all they're going to board into to stop you, then I, who am I to judge? That's your job. That is that is what you're here to do. But, to that end, you can even play Graph Digger's Cage or Rest in Peace if you really want to after sideboard. Uh, you can board out... The, the typical graveyard package in the deck is the... It's... Four Grizzly Salvage, somewhere around three to four Seder Wayfinder, and then your four Unburial Rites, four Lingering Souls. You can board, like, board out Grizzly Salvage, board down on Seder Wayfinder, and board into your own Graft Digger's Cages or your own Rest in Pieces so as to not get hit by them by a deck that is more unfair than you. Like, you have the propensity, you are a fair deck that touches a little bit of unfairness in what you're doing. And you can sort of choose the enter the battlefield effect that's right for you, if that makes sense. What I mean by that is, like, in your sideboarding, you can play the appropriate Enter the Battlefield creatures that you can not only cast from your hand to do the thing you need them to do, i.e. a card like Containment Priest, a card like... Uh, oh, what is it? Something like a Plague Crafter in Boggles matchups, something like a Reclamation Sage against artifact-centric decks. Um whatever the case may be. Something like Kataki against the Urza decks. Whatever, right? You can sideboard into whatever you need 
whether it's an enter the battlefield effect or just a, like a disrupted body on the table. And it's probably going to be fine. Right? Like, it's not going to be horrible. It's not going to be great. It's not going to be horrible. So, I guess, you know, long and short of it, Abzan Rights is a good... It's a good deck to get into if you've never played Modern before. It's a cheap Thoughtseize deck. On the order of something like... The, the Rakdos Arcanist deck or the the Rakdos Prowess deck. But it's a little bit bigger than them because it's got cards like Thrag Tusk and Siege Rhino in it that are just a little bit harder for them to deal with. You've also got access to removal that is really stupid good in Path to Exile. I mean, you've just you've got a really good framework with which to play fair and there's just that little twinge of unfairness from a card like Restoration Angel and Unbearable Rights. Just when they think they've dealt with your thing, it's back. Or it's doing its thing again. So I dig it a lot. Now moving on to our main subject, our main segment. If I can remember how to choose my words. Who are the Abzan Houses? First of all, I actually did not get to play during the Tarkir era, so I'm researching this fervently, trying to find these things out. I didn't know. Uh, the Abzan Houses are one of the five clans of Tarkir. They are, the, they are defined by black, green, and white mana, white being the core color, and the, the clan exploring white's relationship to its allied color green and its enemy color black. So, due in large part to the harsh environment in the lore of the Abzan. They live mostly in, like, deserts, inhospitable plains... Places where it's kind of hard to live and thrive. The societal structure of the, Az the Abzan is built upon the ancient dragon's aspect of endurance. Now again, all the clans of Tarkir have worshipping adoration of the ancient dragons that disappeared before or disappeared thousands of years ago and were hunted to extinction by the leaders of the clans. But there was some admiration given to the way the impact the dragons had on the plane. And in the case of the Abzan, their reverence was for the way that was for how durable the dragons were, how they endured against all odds for as long as they did. You know, they stood up to people. They stood up and stuck around. Family is a particularly important facet of the Abzan to the point that being disowned is tantamount to being thrown in prison. Like, it is one of the worst things you can do if you're Abzan. Their printed mechanic, Outlast, is a good, if 
a little underpowered. It's a really good representation of the idea that they are going to, you know, do whatever it takes to survive and get stronger. Outlast being a mechanic where you could pay mana and tap the creature in order to make it bigger, put a plus one, plus one counter on it. And of course, plus one, plus one counters are a big part of the, the theme. But it gets better than that. Because once the timelines changed in Fate Reforged, because Sarkin saved Ugin's life and the Dragon Tempests that Ugin created didn't die with him. Instead, they survived and continued to release dragons out onto the plain of Tarkir. Uh, timelines changed, and the Abzan fell under the rule of Dromoka. And the mechanic that Dromoka brought to the Abzan is very similar. In the sense that it cares about plus one, plus one counters. And it, you know, cares about making sure the weakest among you are sturdy and durable. But in the case of the, the revisited timeline Abzan mechanic, it's called Bolster. Hence the name of the episode. Uh, bolster is a mechanic that whenever you bolster, you put a number of counters onto your creature that has the lowest, or the the smallest power and toughness power or toughness i think it is so if you bolster two you tell you the creature you control with the least power gets two plus one plus one counters so you are constantly grabbing and raising up the weakest among you which i think is cool for mechanical tropes abzan is known for a big plethora of Synergy involving plus one, plus one counters. This goes all the way back to some of the early commander decks with cards like Gave. All the way up to more modern interpretations with cards like Dagatar or just the litany of cards that care about plus one, plus one counters. Most recently cards like Conclave Mentor and Winding Constrictor that you can play together in order to further maximize your plus one, plus one counter distributions. You have Graveyard Synergies, and when I say graveyard synergies, I mean that differently than like cards that just come out of your graveyard. But there's, you know, flashback is a is a heavy-handed mechanic over the history of magic in green, black, and white. Uh, Dredge was only in green and black. But even mechanics like Haunt that cared about your creature dying and then coming back to do a thing again. Those are all in Abzan colors. And then within the realm of the Abzan, one of the most popular commanders is a card like Carador Ghost Chieftain that is relying upon you playing cards out of your graveyard. You've got Enter the Battlefield effects as another big mechanical highlight of the Abzan. I mean, we just talked about a deck that was chock full of them. I was interested in using Enter the Battlefield effects to set up graveyard synergies. It's amazing how that works sometimes. You've got tribal aspects, although most of Abzan's tribal aspect is rooted in spirits. I'm not dead sure why, but it's pretty cool. 
from a competitive deck building standpoint, you've got good stuff decks where you just play a collection of the best magic cards you can in those colors. You've got some lands matter cards, mostly from green black, but you get to add little splashes of white every now and then. And then last but not least, different from graveyard synergies, you have the aristocrats theme, the sacrifice my stuff for value. Nobody kills my stuff but me. <laughs> so from a competitive history standpoint for me, my first memory of a competitive Abzan deck was actually at my was watching the coverage for my first Pro Tour that I ever watched. And it was the sort of beach house mid-range deck that basically, I mean, it got its name because a group of pros went down to Honolulu early and they tested and tested and tested using the framework of Katsuhiro Mori's Gazi Glare deck and eventually arrived at a version of a variation on that theme of playing, you know, really, really good magic cards in green and white that splashed black. And it combined a bunch of one-for-one -one exchanges with Phyrexian Arena to create a really simple grinding formula. The idea of playing cards like Mortify, cards like uh, Castigate to hit your hand, cards like uh, Seize the Soul to destroy creatures and create a 1-1. One -one. Just removal spells, spot removal spells, and big creatures. It leaned heavily on cards like Loxodon Hierarch, Watch Wolf. I guess not really Watch Wolf. It was more, it was like Loxodon Hierarch, Orzhov Pontiff. It wanted to body the aggro decks by playing small. It wanted to, uh, it, it, it wanted to get under or, or keep the aggro decks from getting under it. So to that end, it was really interested in cards that would slow down an aggressive rush, gain some life, put a giant fat butt in the way, you know. Just hold down the fort until it could start grinding you out with Arena. And this deck goes down as like the least successful popular deck I've ever seen, even if it was pretty good in theory. You know, it combined what it thought was the best aspects of Gazi Glare with a simple grinding engine. But it was so bogged down in its own mana inefficiencies. And it, it was like simultaneously too mana inefficient and had too many three and four drops to compete with aggro. It didn't have enough ways to interact early in the game. But it also didn't have enough top end to compete with the control decks that were tapping out every turn. And it ended up getting some, some variations on the theme down the line that ended up being pretty good. Uh, once they started playing cheaper cards, once they started playing, you know, they, they eschewed the cards like Loxodon Hierarch and instead went to a package of like Debtor's Knell plus Dragon Spirits plus Mirror in the Moaning Well. But it was just, it was a weird deck in the sense that it was really popular, but it didn't seem to do anything. Now the next one... I mean, we just kind of talked about it, but it's Junk Rights and Innistrad RTR Standard. You take the Brew of the Week that we just talked about, but it was in Standard. And it was similarly aligned to, like, the Beach House deck. It wanted to use a bunch of one-for-one -one cards and a bunch of powerful, you know, four- and five-drop creatures. But it succeeded where the Beach House deck failed because it played more early game. 
between, you know, with all the cards that I had access to, it could gain life in the early game and chump block aggressively in the early game to set up unburial rites and then would unburial rites a thrag tusk and then restoration angel a thrag tusk and it was really hard for aggro to beat that and that line would also apply a ton of pressure to control decks so it was it was a much more streamlined and focused and effective deck than something like the beach house deck the the next one is abzan midrange in modern and you start with the old jun decks and you subtract bloodbraid elf and bolt and you add Lingering Souls, Powerful White Sideboard Card, Little Pieces of Synergy, and Path to Exile. So you take the, the Jun deck and take away sort of the speed angle that Jun typically wanted to have. And you sub in better grinding pieces. Cards that are better alongside your Liliana. Uh, cards that exile whatever the opponent's playing. I dig it. You know, it's it's a Tarmogoyf deck built to beat other Tarmogoyf decks. You can't bolt my Goyf, but I can path yours. <laughs> and last but not least, I want to talk about one of... This is just one of my favorites. I'm saving it for last, not because it came last chronologically, but because it's the one I want to talk about the most. And this was a deck in the old extended format. The last, like, year or so of the old extended format... And that deck is Treehouse. Now, this deck started at, this deck started by uh, Brian Kibler and Brad Nelson. They wanted to build a zoo deck that beat Kibler's zoo deck. Kibler's zoo deck being sort of a mid-rangey, over-the-top style of zoo deck with uh, Knight of the Reliquaries and uh, Baneslayer Angels alongside Punishing Fire and uh, Grove of the Burn Willows which we've talked about before, Ruben Zoo. The Treehouse deck took that idea, the idea of playing an aggro deck that was good against other aggro decks because your creatures were bigger and you could win the long game. And they took that theme and pointed it at the Ruben Zoo deck. They not only wanted to beat the other decks Ruben Zoo was good against, they also wanted to beat the Ruben Zoo deck. And it is one of the best examples of taking format constraints into account I have ever seen from a deck building standpoint. They played no cards. Not a one. That died to Punishing Fire on its own. You would have to loot Punishing Fire twice to kill any creature in this deck. That was a, a key stand, a sticking point for, both, for Brad and Kibler on this one. They wanted no creatures that died to the front half of Punishing Fire on its own. So they played creatures like Treefolk Harbinger, Tarmogoyf, uh, Doran the Siege Tower, their own Baneslayer Angels. And then you took into account the fact that you could line up a turn four kill against a combo or control opponent by going turn one Harbinger into Harbinger, turn two Harbinger into Doran, Turn three, Doran, attack for six. Turn four, six and five is 11, 17, and everybody's playing fetch lands and shock lands. You could kill them on turn four. Like, it was really good. 
And add to that the fact that this deck had access to a fetchable Tri-Land that entered untapped in uh, Murmuring Bosk. You could not only fetch it with your fetch lands, but if you really were in a pinch, you could go get it with your Treefall Carbinger to make sure you hit another land drop. And then you had access to Path to Exile and Doomblade effects with which you could use in your mid-rangey mirrors because you could kill their Baneslayer Angel, but they couldn't reliably kill yours. You could take away their answers to yours with Thought Seize and then kill theirs with your removal spells. So, top to bottom, Treehouse is just one of my favorite decks ever in the history of Magic. But, that's all I've got for this week, everybody. I'm, I, I hope you enjoyed it. I'm glad you're watching slash listening slash whatever. Uh, we'll be back sometime next week. For uh, Jess Guy Week. And we'll kind of play it by ear from there. Uh, you got questions, you got comments, you got concerns. Leave them down below in the comments section or on Twitter. I'm at Homeward Path MTG. You can leave them on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain. You can leave them uh, in the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. You can leave them, if you're a patron of the show, you can leave them in uh, the patron path. Patron Pathfinders Discord. I'll, I'll work on the speech. I promise. And with that, that's all I've got for this week. So everybody, go out. Be safe. I've got my second vaccine shot scheduled for in the morning. So I am probably going to be out of commission all weekend. Uh, but I'm happy to go ahead and get it over with. Try to get something resembling normal to, to happen again. Um, but yeah, you know, go out there, be safe, play your magic and remember outlast your opponents. You don't have to win. You just have to be the last one standing. Catch you later, everybody. <laughs>